for us, it's really about designing for the scale. Eventually, everything will scale that we keep around, but you need to be able to design it with aspects of things like object-oriented design. Um, We're using containerized microservices to try to scale one component at a time as needed. I would say that a lot of times, especially being an engineer, it's an internal fight uh, between building something that's good enough for right now, not over-engineering it, and making it that really amazing, cool thing that can scale to infinity. My name is Eric Chelstad, and I'm the CTO and co-founder of Observa. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Eric Chelsea built the platform to enable you to see what your customer sees. All this and more on Code Story. Eric Chelstead is a child of both coasts. In his life, he spent a lot of time skiing and carried that activity into his adult life. Funny enough, though, he's actually a better boarder than a skier. He volunteers with the local avalanche centers and climbs mountains where he lives, which is the Pacific Northwest near Mount Rainier. He's married and just moved into a house outside of the city. He has found a new hobby in being a homeowner, which he says is a new platform to play with cameras, sensors, sprinkler systems, etc. They have a dog, and if they're lucky enough to have kids one day, Eric hopes it will be easier than having a dog, and that the kids won't bite him. In a prior venture, Eric was the owner of bakeries. In developing certain channels for distribution, he ran into a problem where he didn't have visibility to his product at places he didn't control. He figured out the answer was cell phones and a centralized location for entities to consume this type of information. This is the creation story of Observa. Our company, we provide real-time analytics and actions for brands at retail stores. Uh, The way I think about it is it's the initial information that we capture is an audit of the shelf at a retail location. That's kind of the base level thing that we do. And then that information comes back to us and our platform analyzes it makes recommendations. And then if the entity that captured that information is capable, it can take those actions right away. The reason I say entity there is that we have about 300,000 people that we call observers that are out there uh, using our apps and taking these observations or these audits. We partner with camera companies, drone companies, and robot companies as well to collect that information. So really we are this platform that does these analytics and then can recommend actions. Before our company existed, before our platform, our customers either didn't have the data or they had really ineffective ways to collect tiny pieces of it. I think one of our early customers, it's a soft drink company out of New York and they used to actually send their cousins out and buy them bus tickets to go out and check and see how their products were doing on stores outside of their central New York area. So as I was mentioning at the beginning, one of my passions is skiing and backcountry climbing and skiing. I was volunteering with an organization called the Northwest Avalanche Center here. One of the things that came up was 
how can we get information, critical information from the field, so from people that are in the backcountry, and then distribute it out to people as they're planning their trips. So it's really kind of about safety, but collecting observations. In my professional life at the time, I actually owned some bakeries. And one of the challenges I had is in creating a distribution channel uh, to wholesale, to grocery stores and the coffee shops was not knowing what was happening with my product on the shelves. You kind of have this happy meeting of how do we get observations from snowy mountains, combining with how do I get observations from grocery stores and coffee shops at four in the morning. The answer was to use cell phones and collect this information and then get it back to a centralized platform for consumption by those people that need it. I think one of the interesting things is the backcountry and supermarkets have a lot of similarities. They both kind of have spotty network reception. So it was kind of interesting in the same way that the challenge of making sure that the information you collect can be sent back even though the network connection might be hours later. Well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built and you know how it went, how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. So in creating Observa, there's really two main parts for us. There's a, a platform and an app. We built the app using cross-platform C++ compiler. Uh, basically wanted to be able to have as much coverage as possible for users. And so, but also knowing how limited the resources were that we needed to do something cross-platform so we could get that done and get that out there. It just so happened that C++, I was able to tap into my network and find people that knew C++. This was a few years ago, and there are other tools that have come along since, but that one was, it was really good. Uh, we built the MVP in under a month. The kind of part of the problem that we would have with an MVP is that Observer is essentially a marketplace where we need observers and we need customers, or you might think of it as we need things for the observers to do, observations for them to go out and make. So we had to build out this uh, kind of the, the chicken and the egg. And I, I, I say that because as part of the MVP, it's a little bit like we had to create a marketplace MVP as well. We thought that we'd be able to start just locally and then go nationwide, expanding, you know, gently down the West Coast, that type of thing, being able to support it. I will say that our initial customers made us go nationwide almost immediately. Again, kind of part of the MVP was us building a crowd when we had kind of nothing to go off of yet. So from the tech side, C++. <laughs> That's interesting. I, you know, so, and I hear you saying cross-platform and you use C++, what sort of what sort of IDE or compiler or, you know, framework or even, you know, if that's the if that's the right word, what are you using to create that? So on the MVP, it was uh, the library was QT. I believe it may be called Troll Tech now, but uh, it was QT was the library. And it was a it's cross platform with Android, iOS, and you can even, you know, you can build your apps into Windows or Linux as well. With any MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? You know, either a feature cut or accepting technical debt. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make in that first MVP and how you cope with them. One of the things was 
is that, uh, as I mentioned, we did not dive in and make native apps. We immediately had some trade-offs there with the appearance of the app and it, it wasn't going to look exactly like a native app because we had the, the cross-platform situation going on. Given that Observa is a marketplace, we our initial intent was to have this very much a marketplace where our customers would come in and be able to build up their own kind of uh, what we call campaigns to go out and collect this information. And then they would do that work themselves and they would even set their prices what they'd be willing to pay the observer crowd. So we had to make some trade-offs because as most tech people know, building out a nice user interface is very challenging. And so we did not make it into a two-sided marketplace. And we did not make it into a self-service, easy to do thing for our customer via the web, if you will. What we had to do then was to cover and do that ourselves. It turned out to be fairly fortuitous because that enabled us to be the lead on creating these campaigns and creating the questions that would get asked to the observers. It actually worked out really well. Again, we learned about that. And we also learned along the way that uh, our customers didn't necessarily want to do that. That was a that was a trade-off that we made, but it turned out okay. One of the other trade-offs we made was that right at the beginning is that our entire platform was running on a single Linux, Linux server on Linode. Just a pretty inexpensive, cheap platform with a PHP front end and a MySQL database. The trade-off there was that it wasn't going to be infinitely scalable, but at the beginning, that wasn't too hard to deal with because we did not have many observers or customers at that point. So, so you've you've got your MVP. You've worked through decisions and trade-offs, and and you kind of touched on this in the in the beginning, and talk about how some of your customers, you know, took you nationwide very quickly. But how did you progress the product and mature it? And I'm interested in you know how you built your roadmap and how you decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. As I mentioned, the, our customers wanted us to go nationwide immediately. It turns out that they didn't have a lack of information about the stores right in their area as much as they had a lack of information across the entire United States, from large metros to very small towns. And so we ended up scaling really quickly. Uh, we switched over to using, we're actually still using cross-platform, but we're using Meteor. And that's, it's mostly JavaScript and uh, Mongo, combination of those things. Uh, that's actually saved us quite a bit of our resource consumption uh, in that we don't have to maintain two code bases. And that's continued to work out well, but by using, using things like Mongo, we're able to scale that pretty easily and quickly. We also wound up moving our stuff off of a single Linux server, as you might imagine. And we're actually over on Azure now. Uh, that ended up being something that we had to do you know, you, of course, everyone's you're making a decision between cloud service providers when you start doing this. If you're going the cloud route, Azure, Microsoft is a good partner, but also it, being in the retail space, it's kind of interesting that not all retailers want to have their information existing on Amazon or AWS because of the potential competition. So I would say another thing that we progressed on is that as we get more observers, we learned more about our observers. You know, we, again, we have 300,000 people out there as observers now. 
what we initially thought was that people were going to just do an observation maybe when they were shopping. You know, the average payout is about $5. So this idea that they could just, hey, I'm shopping, and they get a pop-up notification that lets them know that they could go do something. But what it turned out is that there are people that want to use the app in that way. But then there's another group of people that want to use the app, and they want to plan a route and go do a bunch of observations in a day. And so we had to progress and move our app to accommodate both types of users. That was one of the nice things about using Meteor and JavaScript is because the coding on that turned out to be uh, pretty quick and easy to do and make those changes and updates as we learn more about our crowd. So the final thing is that we're our reporting uh, as we've progressed, we started with smaller customers and we've moved up into some of the largest brands in the world. As we've done that, we've had to make better and better reporting for them, uh, including making interactive reports, uh, which I'm super proud of them. They're great, uh, but it's definitely, it's something you have to invest resources in and you also really need to do that as you learn what your customers are looking for. So for our roadmap, what we tend to do, we're obviously listening to our customers and the partners uh, that we have. We want to make all of our products and the features that we're building, uh, we want to make them flexible so we can accommodate what's going on with our customers. Uh, we actually see that as a differentiator for us uh, in the way that we're able to be flexible and that we know that our platform is integrating with the platforms that they've already made investments in, their ERPs and their sales systems inventory systems and so we want to be part of that we don't want to replace that so with that in mind uh, we tend to do sort of a modified decision matrix looking at the different attributes of the features and how they fit in with the different desires if you will of the company so we're looking at things like uh, you know what is the appeal to customers what is the appeal to our observers and of course what is the impact to our revenue our operating margins, how much engineering effort is required, and then basically putting that together and weighting it. You know, it's a fairly simple decision matrix, but by using that, it gives you some numerical priorities, and it really gives every everyone in the business or every aspect of the business a say in the decision making. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And, and I'm looking for, you know, what did you look for in these people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? When people talk about startups, especially startups, people often talk about how many hats they have to wear or, uh, you know, wearing many hats is a pretty common expression. I often tell people that they're not going to have time to put on a hat. So when I think about who's going to join us, I look for people that just have this burning desire to continuously learn and explore as a team. It's really important because again, we are a startup, we are moving fast, and we're in a cutting or bleeding edge technology space. So we need to try everything out. A lot of times it's, it's not gonna work, but it's really important for us to try it and know quickly when it's gonna work or not. I, I look at people and I look at, a, I see a key indicator for them as how do they apply their professional skills in their real life. I think an example are engineers that are, you know, maybe they're contributing back to the open source community. Uh, maybe they're building games in their free time, or even as I mentioned, maybe playing with their house as a platform. If there's somebody going and doing management, 
Are they out there volunteering to help young women move into business careers? You know, these types of things that they're passionate about, it really shows through, again, if they're doing that in their personal life as well. I think as a side note to that, it makes the interview process way more interesting because people are talking about the things that they are passionate about. Like I, I saw a study and I, I don't remember where it came from and it was sort of, a, it was just self-reinforcement, but it's about how people that are coding now, they have to be familiar with much more code than somebody had to be familiar with 30 years ago. And I kind of think of if you were at a company, uh, sort of a, a large company and you're filling a function, you're, the number of lines of code that you're going to be working with are probably small. You probably have an insanely deep knowledge about some particular aspect. And that's really important for those roles. At a startup, again, we're pulling in as many new things as possible, trying them out, moving on to the next thing. A lot of this, I, I think of an analogy for this is sort of when you go to Home Depot, when you are buying things to build, say, a deck on your house, you're just, the normal person can just go to Home Depot now and go buy those things and kind of put them together and have a decent deck. They're not having to go out and cut down trees and mill the lumber and have blueprints for this deck project. I think what we have now is a lot of that. We have the ability to grab things and we can grab libraries of code, uh, which are gonna be like those pre-engineered deck components and put them together and try it out. And so we can see how it goes, we can judge it, but we also need to be able to dive down and actually make a part or engineer something from scratch when it's necessary. So that's that kind of that trade-off I think with startups is use as much as you can because you're constantly building. Uh, so use what's out there, but know when it's time to make something yourself. Totally relate to that. And it's, it's hard to switch, I think, at least in my experience, from the convenience of using what's out there to going to, okay, now I've got to recreate this thing that's working right now, but it's kind of a risk. Have you run into those problems? Uh, definitely in optimizing things. I feel that's where that kind of goes is when you're doing something like trying object detection on an image and you realize that you can actually optimize your compiled C code for the very specific GPU that you're using in your system, for instance. The risk is that the effort you're putting in isn't expandable when the next version of the GPU comes out. Uh, however, the trade-off is the increased performance for the now. So yes, you do have to make those decisions and those trade-offs. And again, that's it's where it's important to not just, it's good as a CTO to be able to make those decisions, but hopefully everyone on your team can and feels empowered to be able to make those decisions because they come up quite often. We'll switch to scalability. So did you build this in the beginning to scale efficiently or were you fighting this as you grew? So I don't want to give a flippant answer and just say no, but, but really, no, we just not built initially to scale. It was designed for scale. You know, I, I think of projects kind of going through three phases where there's a prototype, a production, and then scale. And the eventual goal is always to get to scale. One, is, it's part of it is the business environment. Do you need to scale? Knowing that it's very expensive to get to the point of scale, have you 
proven out what you're doing? Is your MVP enough or do you need to keep going a little bit further to really dive into your customer needs and get through to your scale? I often, I think of it as kind of a step function more than a smooth, a smooth line. It's more of a step function where some components go to scale uh, and they go there a lot faster than others. And so for us, it's really about designing for the scale. Eventually, everything will scale that we keep around, but you need to be able to design it with aspects of things like object-oriented design. Um, We're using containerized microservices to try to be able to scale one component as a time at a time as needed. I would say that a lot of times, uh, especially being an engineer, it's an internal fight uh, between building something that's good enough for right now, not over-engineering it, and making it that really amazing, cool thing that can scale to infinity. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built, what are you most proud of? It's funny that you mentioned a balcony. Uh, Before COVID hit, we were actually in this really cool industrial kind of warehouse space. And the engineering team was in a loft and we actually had a balcony. And every time I looked out from there, I thought, it's a really long way to go down these stairs and get all the way to the bathroom. But (laughs) I would say that what I'm most proud of from this company, really, it's, it's being here. It's still being here. You know, most startups don't make it to to the level we have and and it's continuing to grow the company getting to 300,000 observers that's the kind of thing i think about when i again before covid when you go to a sporting event or a concert of some sort and you see a lot of people and you think wow okay we're able to get this many people to use our apps and actually help them out a little bit. Uh, we do get to hear stories from people that have, you know, that going through COVID and, and going through economic uncertain times uh, that our app has been able to help people out. And so that's one of the things I'm extremely proud of. The pandemic actually, it cast a lot of uncertainty into the world of shopping and retail. And we've been able to I'm proud of the fact that we've been able to come out stronger because we've proven that our system is actually a critical component for our customers in operating efficiently and kind of navigating their way through omnichannel and e-commerce. Well, let's flip the script a little bit, Eric. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think a good example of a mistake it's actually, it's kind of almost less of a mistake, but it's a product that we made that didn't go very far. And so right as COVID was coming down to, in the beginning of, of February, March, 2020, we were trying to come up with something that we could do to help out. And so we created this product called Shelf Scout. And the idea of Shelf Scout was, hey, if you're out there shopping and you're going to stores, go ahead and submit some observations, take some photos and let us know how the critical products are doing on those shelves in that store. The idea was, as people couldn't find things like rice or toilet paper or soap, um, that they could go to our webpage that we had set up called Shelf Scout and be able to see 
can I go to my store or should I go to a different store to go try to find the thing that I need? Well, it turned out that this didn't really, it didn't take off. We got people to participate. We got some good input and from people and people were able to use it and, and see some information. But for a number of reasons, uh, it didn't take off. There wasn't a need for it as much as retailers fairly quickly figured out the supply chains and, and got those things dialed in. And so it was something that we recognized uh, was good, that it wasn't happening. But for us and ShelfScap, we had to shut that down. I think the, the mistake was, if you will, just, just launching something without really going through an MVP and talking to customers, enough of them. But how the team responded was to, you know, we, we saw this and we talked about it and we shut it down. And we all felt good about shutting it down. It was the right thing to do at the time uh, to try something, but it was also right to shut it down. So we were able to say, good job and walk away with our heads held high. So I think, uh, you know, kind of that lesson we learned from the mistake is that you can't predict the markets entirely. And so it's really important to be able to fail gracefully. Absolutely. That's super important. And, and it's important to get out there in the beginning and talk to customers to do an MVP. But it's also really hard when you have some intuition or you see something really valuable that maybe your customers don't see or maybe the market doesn't see. And sometimes it works out, but a lot of times it doesn't. So what does the future look like for you know, the product of Observa and for the team? So for our future, uh, we're becoming more of a critical component to our larger customers. So we're getting, again, I mentioned this before, but the, the biggest brands in the world are becoming our customers and their needs are driving us to scale. And so, and that's great because every engineer wants to scale. We get to scale and we're scaling our internal capabilities in large part and, and becoming more of a partner that we're making these trusted recommendations to them. So for us, it means that we get to take on some the, the cool challenges like auto scaling infrastructure uh, for our image processing. And we get to, that means that we're hiring more data engineers and finding new methods and techniques to both clean up our data, make sure that our data is good as we go forward. So we're giving good recommendations and data to our customers, but also being able to do that really fast across a diverse area. You know, and as we, we start growing more outside the United States, we get to continue to build things, uh, interesting, fun challenges like currencies and languages that I know lots of companies are solving as as we all appeal to different parts of the world, but it is a, it's a fun and interesting challenge. You know, we've got, uh, I've mentioned that we have 300,000 observers out there and we're growing that number every day. And so one of the uh, kind of the future is that we're going to be providing them with more opportunities and different types of opportunities than just the sort of the in-store audits and actions that we're doing right now. Awesome. Future sounds very bright. I really like what I'm seeing of the product. And you know, interesting question that I didn't actually get to ask earlier was how do you how do you get people to sign up as observers? How do you get people to 
to get on the app. And you mentioned the marketplace aspect of it, but how, how did you go about that? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think it's an important one for people who are trying to, to build up uh, marketplaces like this. As I recall one of the, initially when we started out and we were looking for some really early on investors and advice from people, we got a lot of the, the question about the chicken and the egg and the idea that it's very difficult to start up a marketplace. And so what we did right from the beginning was to recognize the importance of not just our customer, but treat our observers and our crowd as a customer. And so recognizing that they have needs and not trying to just force a solution onto them constantly, but to evolve that solution for them. And so as part of that, it's um, making sure that they can trust us was important. Again, we are, you know, we're offering payment to people. And so kind of making it fun and easy and fast. So they would recommend us to their friends. Uh, part of the reason that we, you know, we, we pay as fast as we can. Part of the reason we want to move quickly through our validation, which is making sure that the information is correct, is not just to get that information to our customers quickly, but also so we can pay the observers quickly. You know, and that again inspires that trust. Knowing if we can get somebody, it's pretty easy to get somebody to install an app that promises free money, basically. But it's, and I shouldn't say free money, but we'll call it easy money. But then to actually provide that money for them in a way uh, that, that they can see that come over very quickly was important. So you know, we did things like referral programs, and we still do. And we try to keep people engaged with little games and, and things for them to do when there isn't always something right next to them uh, to go out and earn money with. Uh, coming from a marketplace or having experience in a marketplace, variable is a, is a marketplace. The chicken, the egg problem is really interesting and in how you get people on your platform and keep them interested long enough to get the other party on the platform and then have them interact is, is yes. always really challenging. Uh, but but when you do it, it's super fruitful and really rewarding. And how many how many observers do you have? I think you mentioned earlier, is something like three hundred thousand. Yeah, it's about three hundred thousand right now. That's amazing. That's a huge number. And something to be really proud of. Let's switch to you, Eric. So, who influences the way that you work? You know, CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. There was a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's funny, and I'm going to answer this in an odd way, but I, I look up to the advice in that book in some ways. And just knowing that, like at this stage of a company, there are so many things for you to do and trying to get down and figure out exactly what the right thing is to do for yourself and for your company and for your teams on a daily basis. Um, I find inspiration in books like that and people that are sharing their ways in which they do that. I would say another person that actually I do look up to is someone who used to be my boss that was, uh, he was a co-founder of a company called Isilon that I worked at. And uh, it was a, a good success story. Um, and the, the co-founder's name is Paul Mikesell. And, uh, and so it, the company succeeded went public, eventually sold to 
EMC and then Dell. But what I like is, is Paul was always, he kind of kept the level head and he continued to start new companies. He's now making AI enabled robots for farming. Um, but along the way, he was always able to answer questions and mentor me as well as playing in bands with me. Uh, like we would uh, do the annual Christmas party for Isilon and, uh, and we'd get everybody in and play music and, uh, you know, have a, have a company band and those types of things that it's like, there's an interaction and a humility and also a vision towards the future and kind of sharing with other people that I really respect. That's super cool. What kind of music would you guys play in the bands? Uh, well, we are in Seattle, so it was very uh, grungy. <laughs> of course. Of course, you have to. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I would consider that from a business perspective, and, and also what we did with our technology is that we, we really set out at the beginning to, we wanted to get smaller customers to really prove out our product and then build up into, you know, build our crowd, build that marketplace um, and do it in a way that, that didn't crush us right at the beginning. So we, we did go after smaller customers. And I think that if I was to do something differently, I would probably go after larger customers at the beginning or at least much sooner. Um, the question of course would be, would they have worked with us given that we didn't have much of a track record yet? or that we didn't have, you couldn't you know, log into the app store and see that we had hundreds of thousands of downloads. That, so that, that's kind of the question, but I, I would have, I think I would have liked to pursue that just to build up uh, a larger, kind of build for the larger customers and then begin to include the smaller customers as opposed to the opposite. Well, you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think the most important thing I would tell people like that is, yes, go for it. Uh, I would say, yes, show it to me. Tell me all about it and, uh, and you know, go for it. It's not about, I'd say, don't be afraid of not becoming the Elon Musk gazillionaire success bod in the simulation like you you're going to have your own measure of success and you're going to have a life it's kind of that old uh, that that like curse or blessing what people would say like I, I hope you have an interesting life you will have an interesting life when you try this and go for it and don't be afraid again don't be afraid to fail but don't be afraid if you don't become insanely successful right away. Because part of the other thing is, I would say, is just prepare and realize that everything's going to take, it's going to take longer than you thought and longer than you even planned for. So just be ready for that as part of your road to the success that, that you're going to find. And then I guess kind of lastly is like, find, find other people that share in your dream and your vision Hopefully you don't have to do too much convincing, but find them. And when you find them, hang on to them because 
they're going to be good at things that you're not good at. And so you're going to need people that you can trust and that you can share sort of the burden, but also the successes with. So go for it and start building your team. That's great advice. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Observa. You're welcome, Noah. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.